Uh, welcome everyone to our evening worship service. Glad that you're here. Our call to worship is from Psalm 148, verses 13 through 14. So hear God call us into his presence. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 173. Uh, the next hymn may be unfamiliar to some of you, maybe most of you. And so while we're receiving tithes and offerings, we'll play through a stanza once. After hearing it once, try your best. We'll join in singing hymn number 372. And with that, we'll receive our tithes and offerings.
good to learn a new one from time to time, especially from uh, the Psalms. So we're going to enter into a time now of prayer, and I would ask for volunteer to start us off. After that, anyone who would like to can follow, and I will close us uh, at the end. Would anyone like to volunteer for me tonight? Thank you, Stephen. Go right ahead. Father, we thank you that you are the God who hears prayer. Uh, There are times when we pray when we don't have boldness, we don't have confidence, but your word tells us that because Jesus Christ, the great forerunner, has split the curtain in two, has gone beyond the veil into your presence, that we now can boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in time of need. And so we bring to you our our worship, our praise, also our petitions, and our persons. We ask that you would minister to us tonight. We ask that you would rescue the perishing and care for the dying. 
We ask that you would comfort those who are in need of comfort in Zion. We ask that you would uplift those who are downcast. We ask that you would bless those who maybe feel that they're far off now because the Lord Jesus Christ has come near. Lord, would you give us a sense of your presence this night as we worship you? Would you forgive us all our sins and help us taste afresh the calm of sin forgiven? And would you now speak to us through your holy, inspired, and inerrant word? For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So our scripture reading tonight is from 2 Samuel chapter 22. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 there. Uh, we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture tonight, but I'm using this as the primary text. So 2 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of God. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song, on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. This ends the reading of God's Word. So this morning, we talked about, from Psalm 43, preaching to ourselves. And what I've been trying to do with these recent Sunday evening sermons is to kind of build off of or piggyback off of Sunday morning sermons. And so what I want to talk about from this passage this morning, or this evening, is that Really, Christians should be working to have a positive attitude. To believe that if God is the rock and the horn of our salvation, that it should change the way that we view the world. And so in the text, we, we talk, he mentions, David mentions God as his rock. We talked about what it means for God to be the rock a few weeks ago, looking at the story from Exodus where Moses strikes the rock. Tonight, I want to look at this term David uses when he says that God is the horn of our salvation. And what I want us to see is that this word horn is very important in the Bible. I want us to learn about it. So two points. Why is this horn important toward our attitude? And what does it teach us? So number one, why the horn is important. So if you study Hebrew narrative, which I know you're all very fascinated and interested in, um, one of the things that you will find is that before a time when there were chapters, you know, the chapters that we have in our Old Testament had been added there by, later by translators. Often the way the Hebrew writers would show us that they were starting a new section of the story was by using poetry. Poetry would serve as a divider. Poetry could serve, it could be a pure poem, it could be a song, it could be a riddle. And you see, all, you can, I can give all kinds of examples of this, but the easiest is to start at the very beginning. In the book of Genesis, you get the creation story. And you know that the creation story is taking a turn in the Hebrew narrative when a poem appears. Well, what is it? It's when the woman, when Eve is created, Adam bursts out into song. He says, this woman is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she comes from man. And that leads to the following section. Create, we're past creation now. We're moving into the section about the fall. 
Now the section about the fall continues into chapter 4 when you get the next poem, which is in 4.23, which by a gentleman named Lamech, who says to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is seventy-sevenfold. It's a poem. We're starting a new section past the story of Cain and Abel, moving on toward Noah and the flood. And this, it's not just in Genesis, it's all over. In the book of Judges, you get the song of Deborah, you get the riddle of Samson. Uh, now, if, if you, I bring this up because if you look at the story of David in First and Second Samuel, his life and his story is bookended by two poems, by two poems. The first one is in First Samuel chapter 2, and it's the song of Hannah. Hannah is barren. She desperately desires to have a child. And she's seeking the Lord, praying that God would grant her a child. And when she receives the news that she's going to have a child, 1 Samuel 2.1, it says, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And she continues. So that poem begins, it leads to the birth of her son Samuel, who is going to be the priest who anoints David king later in the story. So fast forward, deep into the life of David, as he's getting older, as he's defeated Saul, as he's defeated all of his enemies, in our passage in 2 Samuel 22, David has just had a landmark victory over the Philistines. And you know, the Philistines are the thorn in the side of Israel, going back to when? I mean, all the way to the book of Judges, right? That's who Samson's fighting. He's constantly fighting against the Philistines. And if you follow the narrative of the Old Testament, Samson kind of begins the job of fighting against the Philistines, and David is there. What's his first major act on the scene? It's to fight against Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. And he continues fighting against the Philistines. He has a major victory. And here in 2 Samuel 22, it says, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and refuge and my Savior. This is quoted exactly in Psalm 18. It becomes a book, part of the Psalter as well. So you have these two poems, the poem, the Song of Hannah and the Song of David, kind of bookending the life of David as David is getting into his later years. And there's two major themes that show up in both of their songs. One is that God is the rock of our salvation. We've already talked about that. The other is that God is the horn of our salvation. It doesn't come out as clearly in the ESV when you're reading Hannah. Uh, the ESV, in the ESV, Hannah says, My strength is exalted, but the literal word is horn. So those two elements are present in both prayers, which is telling us they're very important to the life of David and the story of First and Second Samuel. And not only in First and Second Samuel, but if you look through the Psalter, which you know David did not write all of the Psalms, but David is closely associated with the Psalms, you see this idea of the horn uh, being repeated over and over again. You get Psalm 18, which repeats Second Samuel 22. Psalm 89, 17 says, you, God, are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. That's speaking of Israel. Psalm 89, 24. 
My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, speaking of the Messiah, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. Psalm 92, 10. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. And it goes on and on. I'll read one more. Psalm 148, 14, very near the end of the Psalter. He has raised up a horn for his people. See, it's an important theme. It's an important theme. God exalts horns, he raises horns, he sprouts horns, and this is central to the story of David and the advancement of the kingdom of God. But what does it mean? We're getting there. So fast forward to the New Testament. At the birth of John the Baptist, his father Zechariah, when his voice returns to him, he prays this in Luke 1, starting in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, For he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, see a common theme, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, O child, speaking of John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation, and to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who will sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So what we know so far from this is that Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, is saying all those references to the horn of salvation, to the exalting of the horn, they are being fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ whom John the Baptist is going to preach. Jesus is the long foretold horn of Jesse or horn of salvation. And this primarily has to do with God delivering his people from their enemies and shining light onto those who live in darkness. All right, that's the theological, biblical part. Now, I want to get a little more practical and ask, what is this teaching us for our lives? What's the deal with horns, you could put it? Now, go back to the story of Hannah. 1 Samuel 2, verse 1. She says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. In the Lord. So it's a specific type of horn that she's talking about here and that David's talking about and that the psalmists are talking about. It's not like a trumpet. It's not that kind of horn. It's a horn that grows out of the skull of an animal. Now here's what Hannah is saying. I think that the translators, like the ESV, they translated strength because you could find it problematic to say this is a woman who's praying. Why is she talking about a horn growing out of her head when it's primarily males who have horns growing out of their head in the animal kingdom? Right? I think that's part of the problem. But she's using it as a metaphor. And what she's saying is for all her life, or for adult life at least, she had longed for a child, specifically for a son whom she could devote to the priesthood. That was like the one great wish and desire of her life. And when this happens, she is saying the birth of her son is her, absolute, her ultimate maturity. It is the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan for her life. It is her zenith. It is as high as it gets for her. And you know, anybody who hunts deer, anybody who sees deer, you know, 
when the rack of, of a deer grows into full maturity, that's majestic. That's a deer coming to its own. That's a deer that's a trophy. That's a deer that you, you just want to gaze at. And Hannah is saying, with the birth of her son, that's her. She's coming to her own. She's in full-blown maturity. And it is because of God. She's giving him absolute credit. And if you go back to the story of David, David is saying, when he says, God is the horn of my salvation, similarly to what he says in Psalm 3, which is one of my favorite psalms, there he says, God is my shield and my salvation and the lifter of my head. Saying, God is the one, when I'm stooped down and bent over, who causes me to rise up and stand up straight. Jesus being the horn of salvation means he is always exalting our horns. He's always he's, he's destining us for maturity, to bring, bring us into our own, would be one way of putting it. As in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul puts it, Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's defeating, as the Catechism says, all his and our enemies. He's ruling and reigning over us. He's conquered death, hell, and the grave. He's conquered Satan. He's conquered principalities and powers. He's even conquering our sinful natures in the Christian life. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord? And that's meant, that's meant to cause us to stand up straight. That's meant to be our confidence. That's meant to be our hope. So back to the horn analogy. One of the Psalms, Psalm 92, verse 10, the writer says to God, You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. So if you look at a picture of a wild ox, they have these giant, majestic horns. And when they're bent over grazing or doing whatever it is they're doing, it's not that impressive. But when one stands up with his chest out, with his head straight up, and those horns are sticking out, I wouldn't want to be in a dark alley with that place. You know, we had a cat running through the sanctuary earlier. I wouldn't want a wild ox running through the sanctuary. I wouldn't pick it up and bring, bring it out. Uh, maybe somebody in here would, but I wouldn't. But psalmist is saying there, God has exalted my horn like the wild ox because of what God has done for me, because he, he has defeated my enemies, because he's exalted my horn. I'm going to stand up straight. I'm going to be confident. I'm going to be bold. That's the idea. You know, there have been so many studies done. This is where I'm trying to get practical about how posture, just bodily posture and sign language can affect your boldness, your confidence, your mental health, uh, your competence, all of these things. The social psychologist Amy Cuddy wrote a book called Presence. I enjoyed the book. I read it a number of years ago. I think it was written in 2015. But she makes the point in that book, they did, these colleges, these universities did studies, and they looked at people who were coming up to give a presentation, for instance, and if they came up just drawn in on themselves, non-confident, guess what? They struggled. But if they came up, shoulders back, chest up, they were much more likely to succeed in what they were doing. And so Cuddy en encourages people in that book, you know, be confident, stand upright, think about your posture. Again, in Psalm 3, what does David say? God is the lifter of our heads. Uh, Jordan Peterson also talks about this in his book, 12 Rules for Life. His first rule for life, the first rule for life for him is stand up straight with your shoulders back. As simple as that. And it's changed young men's lives all over the world. Uh, Peterson studied, in that chapter he details, he studied the behavior of lobsters. Yes, lobsters. And... What scientists have found that have studied lobsters is as a lobster, when a lobster loses a fight with another lobster, guess what it does? It starts to shrink in on itself. It almost gets smaller 
and smaller. You can tell a defeated lobster just by its posture. But the ones who win fights, they spread out and they spread out and they get, get bolder and they get braver. And he applies this to humans and says, you know, don't walk around in life defeated. Take up the space that God has given you. Be bold. Keep your chin up. Keep your shoulders back. And as Christians, we can say that even more confidently because God has exalted our horns. He's the lifter of our heads. You can see the authors of Scripture doing this all over the place if you just take the time to look. Like Paul, in 2 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 8, he's describing all of the struggles that he's been through as an apostle and as a missionary. And he says, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. What's he dialoguing? What's he chronicling there? How the world viewed him and other Christians versus how they actually stood before God. The world treats, he says, the world treats us like we're imposters, but we're true. The world treats us like we're nobodies, but we're well known because we're known by the only person that really matters in the end. We're known by God. The world treats us like we're dead, yet we're alive and alive forevermore. The world treats us like we're full of sorrow, but we're always rejoicing. The world treats us like we have nothing, but we have everything because we'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. We'd rather be his than have riches untold. How can you have an attitude like that? You have to know what Zechariah knew in Luke 1, right? that Jesus Christ has come to give us the victory. That he's ruling and defending us. He's restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And nothing can separate us from his love. No weapon formed against us can succeed. Because he, who's greater, who, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. I see so many Christians who walk around defeated. And I've gone through periods of my own life where I've walked around defeated. And it was because I didn't take the word seriously. I took my sin seriously. I took what God says about sin seriously. But I didn't take what God said about Christ's victory over sin and over death, hell, and the grave seriously. If we really believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that we have believed in him and have eternal life the very moment we believe that though we die, yet we shall live, that the grave can't conquer us because Jesus has conquered the grave, why do we walk around defeated? Why do we walk around drawn in on ourselves like as though our horn has not been exalted? So many people walk around feeling helpless. I was having a conversation with someone not too long ago who is not here, so I feel safe saying this, I'm not going to say their name, but was just chronicling problem after problem after problem after problem. We all have problems. Life, you know, I like to say the great problem of life is that there are so many problems. And we all have them. And you can just let it beat you down and beat you down, or you can hear Christ say to you, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And actually believe that he can give it. You can walk around full of hope or you can walk around hopeless. 
You can walk around saying, my help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Or you can walk around helpless. And day in and day out, that choice is up to us. And as much as anyone else, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that God has preordained and established everything that happens. But I also believe in his sovereignty. He's given us agency. And I remember uh, years ago teaching on this with a very, very reformed guy in the room. And I was saying, you've got to take some control of your life, man. And he says, are you telling me that like, I actually have to do something? And I'm like, yeah, you kind of do. That's the way God's planned it out. It's him who's at work in us to will and do according to his pleasure. But we actually have to live out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so if you're walking in helplessness tonight, God's word gives you, and it gives you a buffet. It gives you a cornucopia. It gives you an endless supply of hope and confidence if you will take it seriously. One young man I talked to years ago uh, grew up with a learning disability. And he, I don't know a good way of putting it, but he felt inadequate for most of his life. He was very intelligent if you have a real conversation with you. He just wasn't great at reading and he wasn't great at communicating. But if you took the time to really listen to him, he was very thoughtful. He always followed what you're saying. He was always very well engaged. But he told me, Uh, that because of this, even as a Christian, he had felt inadequate for years and years and years. And then I I shared an illustration in a Sunday school lesson that he came to me about a year later and said it had totally transformed the way he looked at life. So I wanted to end by sharing it with you tonight. There's a little book called Unchain the Elephant by Eric Wall. The book talks about how Eric had a sort of epiphany while he was on a safari in Africa and saw a wild elephant for the first time. He saw a wild elephant stand up straight with its tusks shining in the sun. And all he had, the only elephants he had ever seen in his life were captive elephants, elephants in the zoo or in the circus. And he started looking, he started researching into the difference between elephants in captivity versus elephants in the wild. And he found out how, at the circus, how they train elephants to perform. And it's a very simple process. When the elephant is little, they tie a chain around its neck and they chain it to a large piece of wood sticking in the ground and it can't get loose. And it'll pull and it'll pull and it'll try to get loose and it can't get loose, so eventually it starts pulling a little less and a little less. And so as the elephant gets bigger, even as it's getting, becoming strong enough that it could rip that wood or that stake right out of the ground, it's become so used to its circumstances that now the person training it can pull the stake up, just tie the chain around its neck and let it hang loose, and the elephant won't get out of, out of its area. It'll stay in that little circle where the trainer wants it to. And then eventually, you can take the chain off altogether, and the elephant will never leave. Because based on its past, it's determined that in its future, it can't do any more than what it's been doing. It's living as though it is in chains, even though it is not like that defeated lobster stuff just shrunk in on itself well wall applies the chained elephant principle to humans and says we too can be bound in imaginary chains and they very often come from our past experiences we can live defeated even though there's nothing defeating us but ourselves this has been called learned helplessness you convince yourself that your situation can't change right that things can't get better 
that there's nothing you can do other than stand there in your little box and your little circle and you'll never be able to change your circumstances even though nothing's there holding you back except for yourselves. Well, back to First and Second Samuel. When Hannah says, God has exalted my horn. When David says, God is the horn of my salvation. When the psalmist says, God has raised my horn like the wild ox. They're saying, we are not defeated. We are not chained elephants. We need to unchain the elephant. We, we need to stand up straight because God has exalted our horns. God isn't against us. He is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us, Paul says. Our circumstances can be against us. But if God is for us, who cares? My circumstances aren't happening to me in God's eyes. They're happening for me. They may be negative, but he's going to use them. What does Romans 8 say? He's going to use them so that in the last day we're perfectly conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through many sufferings that we inherit the kingdom. Nonetheless, we inherit the kingdom. So stand up straight. Horns up. That's the idea. David had been through so much, been through so many battles. And it's at the end of his life he says, no, God is my horn of salvation. He's defeated Saul and he's defeated all of my enemies. And you know, just on the life of David, I heard someone say once, paradigmatically, you know, David's two major enemies, you had Goliath and you had Saul. Goliath, David killed and defeated in a moment, in a day. Saul, he had to outlast for years and years and years. There are circumstances that God will change in the blink of an eye. There are circumstances that he will change over the course of many years. But no matter the circumstances, we remember that he is the horn of our salvation. And so we stand up straight and we unlearn our helplessness because our help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Let us pray. Father, easy words to utter, hard words for sinners to believe. It's easy to believe that you are our rock because we know that Jesus came and bled and died for us. Yet we still feel the weight of our sin. We still at times feel alienated from you because of our sin, not fully believing that Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe that sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And because we are counted as white as snow before you, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. As the hymn says, bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Help us to live that way, Father. Help us to live unchained because Christ the Redeemer has broken every chain. Help us to live with our horns exalted because Christ is the exalted horn and he calls us to be where he is. Help us to live not as those who are defeated, but as those who are going to be victors over death, hell, and the grave and over every trial that we face in this life because Christ has overcome for us. As we crown him with many crowns, help us to remember that he indeed puts a crown on our own head that in the last day we will cast before him as we worship the risen Savior. Help us to live as sons and daughters of the King, for this is what we are, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand together and sing hymn number 295. 295. Now grace, mercy, and peace be with you all from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.